Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Have you experienced a challenging IOL-related complication during cataract surgery recently? Then this podcast episode is for you. Our guests today dish out advice for some of the most difficult IOL complications and share their top pearls and steps for successful management. Thanks for joining us for another episode of CRST, the podcast. I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST. First, let's listen in as Ahmad Aref from Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary shares his do's and don'ts of implanting an IOL in the sulcus and suggests some guiding principles for promoting long-term stability and safety. The optimal location for IOL implantation after successful cataract extraction is within the capsular bag. This placement mimics the location of the natural crystalline lens and allows lifelong stability after the majority of cataract operations. Unexpected events, however, can occur that force cataract surgeons to use alternative strategies for IOL placement. One such option is to implant an IOL in the ciliary sulcus, between the remaining anterior lens capsule and posterior iris. This strategy affords long-term stability and safety in a majority of cases. There are three main scenarios in which sulcus IOL implantation may be indicated. Number one, mild anterior capsular extension. In this situation, it may be possible to place an IOL in the capsular bag if the haptics can be oriented away from the defect and if the area of anterior capsular extension is not large. If these two criteria cannot be met, placing an IOL in the capsular bag risks extending the tear and involving the posterior capsule. The placement of an IOL in the sulcus can be a safe alternative. Number two, ruptured posterior capsule. Placing an IOL in the bag when the posterior capsule has ruptured may also trigger extension of the tear and lead to IOL instability especially if the capsular defect is large and or irregular. A ruptured posterior capsule is a common indication for sulcus IOL implantation, provided that anterior capsular support is sufficient. Number three, piggyback IOL. The implantation of an IOL in the ciliary sulcus may be considered when a primary IOL is present in the capsular bag and further refractive correction is required. IOL selection. One-piece acrylic IOLs must not be placed in the ciliary sulcus because friction may develop between the relatively thick, bulky haptics and the overlying posterior iris pigment epithelium, potentially leading to pigment liberation and secondary pigmentary glaucoma. Suitable lens options for the sulcus include three-piece IOLs with an acrylic optic and PMMA haptics, three-piece silicone IOLs, and one-piece PMMA IOLs. Each of these lens types has advantages and disadvantages. Three-piece acrylic lenses. IOLs such as the Acrosoft model MA60AC are generally well-tolerated in the ciliary sulcus, and they can be folded and injected through a 2.75 millimeter corneal incision. The haptics are thin, 
so care must be taken during insertion to decrease the risks of amputation and breakage. The haptic-to-haptic length is 13 millimeters, which is suitable for most patients, but may not be stable in large eyes. The optic has a sharp edge design that may lead to iris chafing. Three-piece silicone lenses. Some of these IOLs, such as the Technus Z9002, have rounded anterior edges that minimize the risk of iris chafing. A drawback of silicone lenses, however, is that they can limit visualization of the posterior segment if silicone oil fill is performed for retinal pathology in the future. One-piece PMMA lenses. These IOLs are generally stable when placed in the ciliary sulcus. They are not foldable, however, so a larger incision size is required relative to the aforementioned lens options. Technique. Once the decision has been made to implant an IOL in the ciliary sulcus, an adequate anterior vitrectomy is performed as necessary to decrease the risk of vitreous prolapse and or traction during IOL insertion. Afterward, an OVD is injected to tamponade remaining vitreous and to deepen and create space between the iris and remaining anterior capsule. The main corneal incision is enlarged as necessary to accommodate the IOL. Approximately 2.75 millimeters for a foldable three-piece IOL and five to six millimeters for a one-piece rigid PMMA IOL. Three-piece IOLs may be folded and inserted manually or injected with a cartridge delivery system. Alcon's three-piece IOLs may be injected with the company's Monarch IOL delivery system. The larger B cartridge should be selected to accommodate the IOL. After the cartridge has been filled with an OVD, the lens is inserted and advanced into the cartridge without tucking the leading haptic, and the trailing haptic is hooked around the haptic fixation post. The cartridge is then placed and locked into the injector. After entrance into the anterior chamber, the lens is slowly injected into the sulcus space with an initial turn of the cartridge bevel clockwise to promote proper orientation of the leading haptic. The cartridge bevel is then turned counterclockwise while injection continues to allow slow unfolding of the optic in the sulcus space. Forceps or a second instrument may be used to tuck the trailing haptic underneath the proximal iris. At this point, if there is enough anterior capsular support, the optic may be captured into the capsular space with the application of gentle pressure posterior to the IOL optic with a second instrument. Optic capture can increase the stability of an IOL in the sulcus, especially in large eyes. An IOL that is properly positioned within the ciliary sulcus resides anterior to the capsular plane. A modification in power is therefore required to achieve a refractive target similar to that planned with capsular IOL placement. In most cases, the lens power can be reduced by a half diopter compared to the power predicted to reach the target refraction when the same lens is placed in the capsular bag. It is important to account for the change in A constant if a different type of IOL will be placed, e.g. one-piece lens to a three-piece lens. Simply deducting a half diopter when changing A constants will likely lead to a postoperative refraction that is different from the target. If the lens optic is captured in the capsular bag, it is not necessary to deduct a half diopter, but the change in A constant is required if the lens type is changing.
Preoperatively determining these calculations helps to reduce the chance of an intraoperative error in lens power selection. Following the guidelines discussed in this article and knowing the three main scenarios for IOL placement in the sulcus should help surgeons accomplish safe, effective surgery with excellent postoperative outcomes. Now we turn our attention to Nick Mamelis from the John A. Moran Eye Center, University of Utah, to learn a few pointers on when to YAG, when not to YAG, and how to increase the safety of the procedure and the chance for subsequent visual improvement. Posterior capsular opacification, or PCO, is one of the most common complications of otherwise uneventful cataract surgery. PCO occurs after cataract surgery when lens epithelial cells from the area of the capsular fornix proliferate and migrate across the posterior capsule. The contraction of these cells can cause fine wrinkles or folds and fibrotic opacifications in the posterior capsule. When significant PCO obscures the visual axis and interferes with patient's vision, an ND colon YAG laser capsulotomy is performed to create an opening in the posterior capsule, thereby improving visual acuity and quality of vision. Approximately one-third of patients who undergo cataract surgery and receive a posterior chamber IOL develop significant PCO that requires a laser capsulotomy in the years following cataract surgery. Knowing when to YAG and when not to is helpful to reduce the risk of complications and to increase patients' chances of improved vision. Complications after ND YAG laser capsulotomy are rare. Retinal detachment can develop in the months following the capsulotomy with reported incidents ranging from less than 1% to slightly more than 3%. Cystoid macular edema, or CME, can also occur after laser capsulotomy. Although NDEAG laser capsulotomies are successful in the majority of patients and the rate of complications is low, it is important to keep in mind the potential risk of complications when performing the procedure. Care must be taken to focus the laser precisely in order to avoid damaging the IOL optic. Extensive pitting of the IOL optic can lead to visual symptoms. Various lenses are available to help precisely focus the laser beam on the posterior capsule. A posterior offset of 100 to 200 micrometers will often help to prevent damage to the posterior surface of the IOL, and the minimum laser power necessary to create an opening in the posterior capsule should always be used. The most common reason for performing an NDEAG laser capsulotomy is when significant fibrosis, wrinkling, or opacification of the posterior capsule occurs. When PCO causes decreased vision, glare, or difficulties with visual function, a laser capsulotomy is indicated. The procedure is also indicated when PCO compromises the clinician's view of the fundus in a patient with retinal disease. Laser capsulotomy also may be considered for patients who develop capsular block syndrome and capsular bag distension syndrome in the period immediately after cataract surgery. Capsular block syndrome results from a partial occlusion of the anterior capsular rexus opening by the IOL, which can cause a buildup of material posterior to the lens optic. Capsular distension syndrome can occur when a retained OVD occupies the space between the posterior surface of the IOL optic and the posterior lens capsule. Patients with these syndromes often report blurred or cloudy vision. Forward movement of the IOL optic can also induce myopia. An NDEAG laser capsulotomy creates an opening in the posterior lens capsule 
that allows material trapped behind the optic to flow into the anterior vitreous, thus decompressing the area behind the IOL and alleviating capsular bag distension syndrome and capsular block syndrome. Patients who develop capsular distension syndrome or capsular block syndrome may require treatment immediately after cataract surgery. In contrast, some patients have a persistent posterior subcapsular cataract or fibrosis along the posterior capsule that cannot be removed during cataract surgery. In this and other situations where capsulotomy is not immediately necessary, it is often recommended to postpone the procedure until the blood aqueous barrier is established. This delay decreases the risk of inflammation after laser capsulotomy. It is unclear exactly when the blood aqueous barrier reforms after surgery, but it is reasonable to wait approximately six to eight weeks following cataract surgery before performing a routine laser capsulotomy. A laser capsulotomy should not be performed in the presence of active or ongoing intraocular inflammation. It is also prudent to wait for possible resolution of CME before performing a laser capsulotomy. One of the most common reasons for not performing a laser capsulotomy is that there is a reasonable possibility of having to exchange an IOL. This problem arises most frequently in patients who receive multifocal IOLs and experience dysphotopsias postoperatively. Some surgeons advocate for an early laser capsulotomy in this situation to try to resolve patients' symptoms. It is crucial, however, to differentiate visual symptoms caused by true PCO from symptoms that may be related to the IOL itself. Patients who are experiencing dysphotopsias, especially significant positive dysphotopsias, often require an IOL exchange. Those experiencing significant negative dysphotopsias may achieve neural adaptation over time. If a piggyback IOL procedure is being considered, if the original IOL becomes displaced, if the IOL manipulation is being contemplated, or if an IOL exchange is a possibility, it is important to hold off performing a laser capsulotomy. An open posterior capsule makes these procedures much more difficult to perform. The most common cause of chronic endophthalmitis following cataract surgery is a low-grade infection located within the capsular bag secondary to Propionobacterium acnes. This condition is uncommon and is sometimes misdiagnosed as PCO. It is important to evaluate patients carefully at the slit lamp to look for signs of P. acnes within the capsular bag. In these cases, a fluffy white infiltrate is often observed between the capsular bag and the posterior lens capsule. A laser capsulotomy should be avoided because opening the posterior capsule can allow dissemination of the bacteria into the vitreous, which may lead to endophthalmitis instead of keeping the infection localized to the capsular bag. Last up, Robert Melendez from Juliet Eye Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico, talks about IOL selection in difficult eyes and emphasizes the importance of a meticulous preoperative examination in every eye. Refractive accuracy in cataract surgery is increasingly important. Patients expect to obtain excellent visual acuity and quality after surgery, and the margin for error is narrowing. Achieving a post-operative result within plus or minus 0.5 doppers of the intended refractive target is typical in most normal eyes. But certain types of eyes present challenges. This article discusses several strategies that can help to maximize outcomes in difficult eyes and offers tips for simplifying IOL selection in these cases that go beyond merely selecting the appropriate lens calculation. 
The most important thing we can do as refractive cataract surgeons is to conduct a meticulous preoperative examination in every eye. Obtaining highly accurate measurements is the key to nailing the postoperative refraction. This starts with accurate diagnostic testing. I use the Argos biometer with image guidance and the IO Master 700 for every eye, and I compare the results with both devices. If the measurements do not match, I like to use the Aura system with Verify as a third device to confirm the most appropriate IOL power intraoperatively. For surgeons with only one device, I suggest repeating measurements to ensure accuracy and making sure the cornea is well lubricated. The imaging software with the two biometers I use captures images quickly, so dryness is less of an issue than with older biometers. The most difficult eyes in which to obtain accurate measurements and to calculate IOL power include short and long eyes, post-refractive eye surgery eyes, and eyes with poor ocular surface health, and of course, eyes with dense cataracts. For this last group, I prefer to use the Enhanced Retinal View or ERV mode on the Argos biometer because it can penetrate even the densest cataracts, including grade four cataracts and provide an accurate prediction of the IOL power. When the Argos with ERV is not available, manual A-scan biometry can be used. This method, however, tends to produce more variable measurements. The Argos has an extremely fast, less than one second capture time and scanning speed. This helps reduce our patient technician contact time, a consideration that is especially important for current social distancing efforts. Overall, with the Argos, a typical biometry examination is about five minutes and typical A-scan biometry requires about 15 minutes. The ERV is an optional setting on the Argo, so the technician must enable it before the acquisition of the measurement. Of course, a good IOL formula is also important. I predominantly use the Barrett Universal formula. Patient personality is a huge factor to consider when selecting an IOL, especially in difficult eyes. Some patients are more willing than others to tolerate trade-offs in visual quality or subtle side effects if they can achieve excellent vision at a certain range. Others, however, will be unhappy if their vision is anything less than perfect. Of note, I have found that even particular patients do well with a trifocal IOL because it delivers consistent refractive outcomes at near 16 inches, intermediate 24 inches, and far. About five years ago, surgeons started to be better at matching patients with the best IOLs for them. Patient counseling is crucial to this endeavor, but the most consistent lens outcome for me has been with the Acrosoft IQ Panoptics Trifocal IOL. It is also important to examine the ocular surface before cataract surgery. Eyes with dry eyes, for example, can present with false astigmatism on the preoperative examination. This increases the risk of selecting the wrong toric IOL power and or over-treating the astigmatism. Cataract surgeons have gotten better at hitting the refractive target more consistently, even in difficult eyes. The reason for this is threefold. Number one, the latest biometry devices provide more reproducible and consistent measurements that previous generation devices really couldn't. These measurements can also be shared seamlessly between devices through the cloud, eliminating transcription errors and reducing the risk of inaccurate IOL powers. Both the Argos and Islemaster 700 provide consistent and predictable outcomes in normal eyes.
Number two, these devices are more powerful and can therefore penetrate even the densest cataracts and obtain accurate measurements in the most challenging and difficult eyes. Number three, devices such as the Argos have a variety of eyewall formulas built in and allow operators to toggle between them in order to decide which formula will provide the most accurate refractive result. This is especially important because I am seeing a lot more patients with a history of myopic LASIK or now of cataract age. I find myself going to the Ascaris online calculator infrequently, if ever, now that I have the Argos, period. In the future, I envision that this and other devices will incorporate artificial intelligence data into IOL calculations. Proper IOL selection in difficult eyes is more than simply using the right IOL formula. Post-operative results within plus or minus 0.5 doppers of the intended refractive target are achievable, even in difficult eyes, when a meticulous preoperative examination consideration of patient personality and proper patient counseling are incorporated into the surgical planning process. In addition to the topics covered in today's episode of the podcast, the May issue of CRST provides myriad pointers on other IOL-related topics, including IOL dislocation and subluxation, IOL exchange, Yamani tips and tricks, late IOL calcification, and when to get a second opinion. Click on the Issues tab of crstoday.com to check it out. Thanks for listening.